This summer we have begun the journey of walking through the book of Acts together, and we are now five chapters into the story of the early church, and this early Christian community is starting to grow confident and bold in its mission of witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus beginning in Jerusalem and spreading outwards from there to the very ends of the earth. The more they grow in number, though, we're seeing that the more opposition they have begun to face. The past three weeks, we have seen their first experience of opposition from outside of the community. We looked at the story of Peter and John healing a crippled man outside of the temple gate and the reaction it produced. The people celebrated this miraculous, events while, this miraculous event while the priests became jealous. Feeling threatened, they threatened in return and attempted to silence Peter and John. And this week, we are told a story about the early church's first experience of opposition from within. It's always more unsettling when the threat to a community comes from within, from its own members, especially when that community is the church. What we all expect from the church and what we all hope the church will be is the ideal description of that early community offered in the opening verses of our passage this morning. It was read for you just now, but listen to this description again. Tell me you wouldn't want to belong to a community like this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. They all valued the same things and were in agreement about the answers to the big questions of life, like the meaning and purpose of life, and they all lived out their faith in real life. Whether rich or poor, they took care of each other. And every one of them was speaking with their neighbors and friends about Jesus. They were in this together. And as they lived together, it was evident that this was a community that was characterized by great grace. It was extremely attractive. And so thousands turned to join this community. Now, you might hear about this homogeneity, the fact that everyone in this community had everything in common and consider it uninteresting or even undesirable boring or dangerous even. As our world has grown more connected, we've come to value diversity and variation of perspective. But don't forget that the early church was extremely culturally diverse. They were homogenous in their shared belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they were extremely culturally diverse. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit provided the apostles with the divine capacity to proclaim the gospel in languages foreign to them. And so men and women from Iran, Iraq, Syria, Israel, Turkey, both the European and the Asian side of Turkey, uh, Egypt, Libya, and Rome were united in Jesus Christ on that day. In Jesus, there was actually peace in the Middle East, but such is the power of the gospel. Jesus is able to unite even the most diverse peoples, not erasing their differences, but allowing their differences to be appreciated around the centrality of Christ. You see, the gospel says that you died when Jesus died. 
And when he was raised, you were raised to life in him so that the life you now live belongs to him. He's the most important fact about a Christian. Apart from him, you were dead and had nothing to boast about. But now we are alive and have Christ to boast about. Everything else about us has become secondary to him. And so to put a modifier in front of Jesus is a denial of this reality. Modifying the word Christian with any demographic marker, race, gender, nationality, denies the centrality of Christ in the life of the believer and divides the body. You're not an American Christian. You are a Christian, full stop. You are not a male Christian or a white Christian. You are a Christian, period. Obviously, you've not lost your demographic distinction. You are still a man or a woman. You are still American or Japanese or German or Chinese. You are still black or white or brown, but those things are no longer the most important things about you, Jesus is. You no longer have to insist on those things as superior, and that's how Jesus creates true unity. That's how Jesus creates the kind of unity we see in our early passage this morning. See, of all the major world religions, it's Christianity alone that has transcended and united the nations of the world. Right? So Islam has always been a religion predominantly of the Middle East, North Africa, India, Pakistan, Indonesia, all kind of in there. Buddhism is a religion of the Far East, China, Thailand, Japan, Myanmar. Hinduism is primarily a religion found in India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. But Christianity, a religion that began in the Middle East and at one time dominated Western Europe, is now highly concentrated in the United States, Brazil, Mexico, the Philippines, and Nigeria. Christianity is unique in this regard. But it's because Jesus provides unity in the face of diversity. He says, you are dead and you are mine. The early church is no exception. There was great unity and diversity because Jesus was the common ground upon which these diverse peoples stood. And so they considered nothing their own. They had everything in common, and yet they were extremely diverse. And after describing this community at large, Luke tells us of one man in particular, Barnabas, who we'll see more of in the future, who sold a piece of property he owned and laid the money from that sale at the apostles' feet, a gesture intended to communicate a release of that money to the apostles' discretion. Barnabas was from Cyprus. He was not from Jerusalem or Galilee, but from an island in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Greece. He represented the diversity in the early church. But that's not the only reason Luke chose to tell his story. Luke chose Barnabas because he's setting us up for the story that is to follow in the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Luke uses Barnabas as a foil to Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were husband and wife and members of the early Christian church. They were wealthy enough to own property. So, like Barnabas, the two of them decided to sell some of their property and give the proceeds to the church. But in contrast to the uneventful story of Barnabas' gift, Ananias and Sapphira's story has a disturbing ending, an ending that is said to have brought great fear upon the early church in both verses 5 and 11. The story of Ananias and Sapphira ends with the death of Ananias and Sapphira, Each of them is said to have fallen down at Peter's feet and have breathed their last. 
it was a particularly disturbing death because the text explicitly says that they fell down of their own accord and breathed their last. There's no mention of Peter even laying a finger on either of them. This was an act of divine judgment and not the rash actions of a power-tripping apostle. Ananias and Sapphira were enough of a threat to the church that God himself removed them from the community and from the world. But what did they do to deserve such a death sentence? Well, they lied to God and to themselves and to the church. You find this out in verse 8 when Peter is questioning Sapphira. He asked her with the, the donated money still in his hand, Did you sell the land for this much? And Sapphira said, Yes, for that much. But they hadn't, right? They had sold the land for much more than what they gave the church. And verse 2 tells us that Ananias and Sapphira agreed in advance that they'd keep some, some of the money for themselves, but tell the church that they were, in fact, donating the full amount. No one made them sell the land. No one made them give the proceeds of the, to the church, even. They were free to do what they wanted with their land and with the money that they received from the sale. That was Peter's point in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own, he asked Ananias? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? But the second they told the church that they are giving the full amount of this sale to God, that money was no longer theirs. The deliberate and secret withholding of some of the money after they had told the church that they were giving the full amount was not just a lie, but an act of theft at that point, engineered to boost their reputation in the church without requiring any true vulnerability or commitment on their part. The church would praise them, and they, would have, they wouldn't really have to part with all their money. It was a win-win for them, but it was a purely selfish act, and their lie was a threat to the church from within. But does a lie like this really deserve death? That's a question that people have been asking ever since Luke wrote this story down. The punishment doesn't seem to match the crime, does it? Until you consider the impact that a lie has upon a church, a community whose very existence depends upon truth-telling. Truth is the thread that knits together every community, but this is particularly true of the church. Theologian Miroslav Volf and his book Exclusion and Embrace writes that the idea that truth sustains community while deception destroys it is woven into the very notion of truth that we encounter in the biblical traditions. In the Old Testament especially, truth was used of things that had proved to be reliable. Reliability would be the best comprehensive word in English to convey the idea. Truth is that on which others can rely. The apostles and the witnesses of the resurrection took great pains to be found reliable because the truth of the resurrection hinged on their reliability. So the gospel writers, when they were recording the life of Jesus, did not clean up their self-portrayal in the narratives. More than half the time, the apostles looked like bumbling fools, Peter himself being the chief doofus. If you want to question the truthfulness of the gospel accounts, then you have to account for the negative portrayal of the gospels. They left uh, of the of the apostles. They left that negative portrayal of themselves in there precisely because they were committed to telling the truth regardless of the cost to themselves. Neither did they remove the women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. Anyone making up a story of the resurrection would never in a million years have had women 
whose testimony was inadmissible in court, be the first witnesses. Without a doubt, you would make the first witnesses men. And yet the apostles were committed to telling the unvarnished truth, so they left the women in there. Jesus' death, even, illustrates the apostles' commitment to truth-telling. If you are fabricating a story, hoping to make a man appear to, appear to be a god when in fact he wasn't, you certainly don't have him weeping in the garden or crying out from the cross. No, you have him die like so many other Greek and Roman heroes of the day, valiantly and sternly defying death up until the, he takes his last breath. But insistent on telling the truth, the apostles wrote of the weakness of Christ, right? the blood-stained sweat in the garden and his pleading with his father from the cross. The past few weeks even, we saw how Peter and John boldly committed themselves to the truth, even as the very men who were instrumental in Jesus' murder threatened their lives as well. They refused to claim that they were healing people in their own power because it was actually Jesus. They refused to lie and discredit themselves because so much hangs on the apostles' credibility. Even your faith, if you are a Christian, relies almost exclusively on the credibility of the apostles. How do you know Jesus? Is it not from the Bible alone? Yes, the Apostle Paul says that we may deduce from nature that there is a God, but it's through the Bible alone that the testimony of the apostles and prophets that we know about Jesus and the work of salvation that the triune God has accomplished through him. Without the testimony of the apostles, our, no- our knowledge is, is partial and insufficient. You know, we're shocked and horrified by the death of Ananias and Sapphira. But should God really have allowed such deception to take root in the church at such an early and vulnerable stage in its life? He was merely protecting the church and the faith of all those who would come to believe based on the teaching of the apostles, even your faith. He was caring for you who would believe over 2,000 years removed from that fateful day. Why should you believe the testimony of the Bible? Well, because Ananias and Sapphira are examples of how God treated liars in the early community that produced the New Testament writings. Falsehood was given no quarter. There was no room for deception. He was not going to allow a second serpent into this new garden which he was planting in the world. So God took back the breath he had put in Ananias and Sapphira's lungs. And even today, his feelings towards deception in the church remain the same. The stakes are just as high now as they were then. For think about this, the faith of our children depends on our ability to be a community that speaks only truth. How will our children, the children of First Presbyterian Church, the children that you all as a congregation have taken vows, assuming responsibility along with their parents for their spiritual nurture, how can we possibly expect our children to believe us if in one sentence we tell them that there was a man who lived 2,000 years ago in a country called Israel who was not just a man but also God and that by his death we are forgiven and accepted by God and then in the next sentence lie to them and break our promises to them? How can we trust each other if we deceive and speak in half-truths? Christine Pohl was professor of Christian ethics at Asbury Seminary, and in her book, Living Into Community, she writes, A close connection between truthfulness and fidelity is important at the individual as well as the community level 
Because faithfulness in making, making and keeping promises is central to a community's ability to speak and hear the truth. What she is saying is that deception and broken promises have the ability to not only affect our ears, the way we hear things, but also our mouths, the way we speak. In a world that permits deception, only the most cunning and manipulative survive. But if we've seen anything from the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it is that God will not permit his church to become so polluted. He's active in preserving and protecting her, even when he is preserving and protecting her from threats that come from within. God cares about truth within the church because he cares about you, your faith. But he also cares about truth because truth is God's nature, and he hates to be misrepresented. If we take Miroslav Volf's definition of truth from earlier and agree that reliability is the best comprehensive word in the English language to convey the idea, then God introduces himself to Moses as the truth. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love and f- and for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In this introduction, God tells us what he's about and assures us that he'll always be the same. He is reliable. And Jesus himself in the Gospel of John comes right out and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But how can we really trust this God? He claims to be merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And yet, he's also a God to be feared, a God who takes the life of a man and a woman for merely lying. How can we really trust his promises of love and forgiveness? We have to look no farther than the cross, for there the truth of God is fulfilled. There the promise of God is kept. The only way for God to extend mercy and grace and love to us, the only way we can find forgiveness for iniquity and transgression and sin is if he takes all of our guilt and he pays for it himself. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross and in his descent into hell. Jesus, God in the flesh, was willing to suffer and die in order to keep his promises of mercy and love to us. Jesus, remain true to you even to the point of death. Do you doubt God's promises of love for you? Look no farther than the cross. Where God, like Abraham, was willing to let his own son, the son whom he loves, sacrifice himself for you. In Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. God promised Abraham that he would have many children, and that he would make his children victorious over their enemies. And in Jesus, he has kept his word. For you are Abraham's children, adopted into the family through Jesus, Abraham's true descendant. And in Jesus, you have been made victorious over your enemy, which is sin and death, conquering it when Jesus rose from the dead. When he died, you died. And when he was raised, so were you, victorious over sin and yet still living in this world. You are the evidence of God's truthfulness, the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. 
So when you are overwhelmed and with a strong urge to sin, remember the promise of God that He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation will also provide a way of escape. Look no farther than the cross and believe His promise to you, denying yourself and clinging to His sufficiency. When you are lonely and depressed, in pain from some chronic chronic sickness or mourning the death of a dear friend or spouse, remember the promise of God that He will be with us always, even to the end of time, that He will never leave us or forsake us. Look no farther than the cross and know that He is with you. If you feel lost in life and are in search of answers without an anchor in this world, Adrift at sea, remember the promise of God. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Come to the cross. There you will find your answers and an anchor for your restless soul. There you will find confidence in the only beloved Son of God. If your heart has grown cold and your faith has become a formality, come to the cross and let the love and faithfulness of Jesus displayed there, stir your affections for him and breathe life back into your faith. Come to the cross and look upon the faithfulness of God, for he is true. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.